Number 11. Ephesians, third quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Welcome, friends of Pinole, to our study of the book of Ephesians. Today's lesson is Practicing Supreme Loyalty to Christ. Dr. Daniel Duda will lead through the study, and Jim Testament will give the opening prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your servant and all the students that we have of the Bible here today. We pray that you will give us insight and wisdom on how to deal with the culture of our day as Paul and the church dealt with the culture in their day. It seems probably just as difficult now, maybe more so than even in those days. We pray that you will help us to learn how to be in the world, but not of the world, as the scriptures say, and that we will know how to approach people in ways that are winsome and attractive and to represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim. And hello, everybody, and welcome to lesson number 11 in the quarter on Ephesians. Now, this lesson is a direct continuation of the previous lesson. In the previous lesson, we have been looking at chapter 5, and we mentioned it's one of the most abused texts in the Bible. And the reason was that people don't see that textually 521 is the heading for whatever comes. So if you don't see to verse 21, submit to one another as the heading for what is supposed to come, then you are going to misread and misquote whatever comes back later. And of course, the second reason was that we mentioned that people read what is written to someone else. So the tendency for wives is to read the ones that is for the husband and for the husband to read the one that is for the wives and to demand that the text says, this is what you are supposed to do. And if you do this, then maybe, hopefully, I will do what is required of me. And that's not the way forward but the text shows that the submission which is within the Trinity, between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, is the model of mutual submission in the new community that Christ started. This lesson deals with Ephesians 6, 1-9, to and verse 9 is chosen as the memory text for us, but we will cover it later when we come to the discussion of master and slaves relationships. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And, masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. All right. If you look under number one, their introduction for the Sabbath says, what is the purpose of the lesson? So today in our time and culture, we need to read the Bible, in this case Ephesians 6, 1 to 9, in the context of the full story of salvation. We need to take into consideration the complete Bible. 
and then we can apply the values of the Gospels into the flawed social structures of the day. The simplest way would be to follow the outline as the lesson does, so going from verse 1 to verse 9. So Sunday's lesson focuses on children, then the next one on parents, and then Tuesday and Wednesday look at two injunctions to the slaves, and then Thursday is addressing the masters of the slaves. But it's easy to miss the redemptive direction of the Bible if we just start with the children. So my suggestion is that you start with uh, slaves and masters. There you can see clearly how do we interpret the Bible? How do we see the redemptive direction within the Bible? And once we have tackled that, and Christians have struggled with that one throughout the last 2,000 years, then it's easy to see how the first ones about children and parents are applied. So... My suggestion is that we follow that rule because it will be easier to handle and you can clearly see the direction in which the Bible wants us to go. So if you look under number three in your study notes, Christians for centuries wrestled with the fact that their sacred texts describe a practice of slavery as something that God approves. And while Paul says in Acts 17 that God winked at the times of ignorance, With slavery, this is not just the time of ignorance. You have a number of laws that are there in the Bible that show that God approved or endorsed the institution of slavery and gave laws regarding it. And so it's not easy to argue that slavery is something against God's will. And this brings into forefront the question, What does it mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? What does it mean when we say that the Bible is the holy book? What does it mean to have the high view of Scripture, take the Bible seriously, or whatever language we might use? Because, as you know, with a good concordance, you can prove from the Bible whatever you want. And throughout the centuries, people used the Bible to justify things that were just clear exploitation of another human being, and they justified it with the Bible. If you look under number four, John Henry Hopkins in 1864, so that's 19th century, he said those who opposed slavery, and you know the history of the Civil War and the opposition, engaged in a willful or conscious opposition to the truth, because God said it, I believe it, and that settles things for me. There is nothing to discuss. If Paul gives instructions to slaves, that means slavery is going to be here until the second coming. And he asked this rhetorical question, who are we that in our modern wisdom we presume to set aside the word of God and invent for ourselves a higher law than those holy scriptures which are given to us as a light to our feet and a lamp to our path? So you can hear in that, that people who opposed slavery in 19th century America, they argued that, yes, the Bible mentions slavery, but we should not be literalistic in our approach to the Bible. We should see the higher laws in the scripture. Bernard Whitman, in 1831, summarized it so well when said, when Moses speaks the words of God to the Hebrews in the Old Testament, our job is to listen, not to call them into question. So it's very clear that if you stay with the plain reading of the Bible, 
It created problems already in 19th century. And of course, the world has changed since 19th century significantly more. It's going to create even more problems in 21st century. So let's go to Anthony. I guess a question I would have is, as I read this, I see these verses saying more about how we're dealing with our fellow men than trying to give us some sort of political understanding of slavery. It gives instructions how the church in Ephesus or the believers in the valley there around Ephesus, because it's not only for one church, it's for the surrounding churches as well, the epistle, how they should handle this problem. But there is no saying in light of what Christ said, let's put the slavery aside. By the time we come to the end of the lesson, we are going to have some quotations from Ellen White, who as a 19th century prophet is going to come up with a very different version and even say that slavery is a sin of the darkest dye and that it's incompatible with membership in the Seventh-day Adventist church. So you can't be a slave owner and a Seventh-day Adventist. Now that goes way beyond what the Bible says. And how do we deal with this? How do we interpret the Bible? When majority of people that you and I meet, say, if God said it, I believe it, and that settles all for me. Our job is to obey and to do what the Bible says. That's the expression of faithfulness to God. Let's go to Helen and then Sean. I wonder if the lack of questioning is kind of like in the Old Testament where God doesn't seem to question polygamy. Okay, but he gives laws that are going to regulate it. So, for example, Exodus 21 is going to say, if a man takes another second wife, there are three things that he needs to provide. He needs to provide food and clothing and marital expression of love. And, of course, the rabbis then are going to discuss ad infinitum what it means to provide marital expressions of love and how much is enough and how much is not enough. But it still provides some humanization of this barbaric custom, which is the consequence of your husband will rule over you, just as slavery is the consequence of the fall that one human being can rule over another human being and have the power over them. Yes, but this will be part of the redemptive move and the direction in the Bible. Sean? I really appreciate your insight or bringing us to the notion in point two in the outline that the battle over slavery was in many ways a battle over how to interpret the Bible and how to understand the authority of Scripture. This has led to some rather serious and very good reflection for me in understanding that in this our day, the same two issues, interpretation of the Bible and the authority of Scripture, are as critical in our social context as they were in the 1860s and previous with respect to slavery. It's disturbing, frankly, that. We have a history of very smart people, very intelligent individuals who settled into this, God said it, I believe, and that's all there is to it, model when indeed, I think all along, God has been trying to get us to look beyond and further. So this redemptive trajectory that you refer to is fluid. It's moving all the time. And in some situations, it's constricted, very selfish, very personal, the way that we conclude theological positions on a selfish trajectory. I think the call here in this lesson is to go beyond the selfish 
and look for broader issues that Paul does bring us to so nicely in Ephesians and Colossians. But I think it does highlight the significance of the Seventh-day Adventist movement that was raised to highlight this much broader trajectory. But selfishness exists today, even in our own trajectory. But certainly, I see it all around, and I speak with individuals in my local region who are so narrow in their trajectory that they are even today willing to accept some of the restrictions on humans that lead to the thinking about justifying slavery. I'm at a loss as to know how to address that other than to realize where it comes from a little bit more perhaps than others do, but addressing it is very difficult. Don't touch my wallet and don't touch how I understand the Bible. Seems to be two principles in this modern day that are pretty uh, high bars to try to get through. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Lou? Well, I think it depends as we look at scripture on the kind of God that we believe in. Because God is loving. He doesn't want mistreatment of people and goes way back on the time of Israel. When you read like Isaiah and Jeremiah and those prophets that were talking continually about Israel doing wrong things, and then you hear God's pleading voice of love to come back, come back. But I was thinking in our world today, the power structure, even in business, that it can be very abusive and it's changing, fortunately, really. The companies that are doing their best are companies that the head CEOs and whatever are very, very oriented to their employees. So power, God is not into power at all. He's into love and good leadership leads from love and from kindness. So I just think that if we read the scriptures without that beautiful picture of a loving God, everything can be taken out of context and become this particular one, husbands over wives, can be a a power structure, which is so wrong. That has nothing to do with the love of God and how he wants us to treat each other in love. Okay, thank you. Jim? Well, it seems to me if you look at the history of evil and even in the universe, that God has never taken, or I should say not never, but very seldom takes direct action against the evil, but instead attempts to influence toward the good, with the exception of perhaps the flood, where he destroyed the evil just outright, so that's enough. On the other hand, he left the survivors who weren't a whole lot, in some cases, (laughs) at least they were better, but they weren't perfect either. And before long, we were back into some of the same practices of idolatry and sacrificing to gods and all that stuff. And even with the Israelites, he didn't use them to go out and destroy evil in the world. Instead, he wanted to create an island of righteousness and virtue that would attract people back to the right way. The only place where they destroyed evil was just to clear the land that would give them their nation that was to be that light in the world. But they didn't go spreading out, conquering other nations all over the then-known world to eradicate idolatry and stuff. And God did not take direct action against those kinds of evils, but instead tried to set up an alternative viewpoint. And I think that kind of explains his reaction against polygamy, 
divorce and even slavery. He doesn't necessarily just shut it down with his power. Because if that's where the thinking of people is, then uh, shutting it down with power is not going to change the society or the customs. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Aaron? So how do we interpret the Bible's minimal commentary on slavery? And yet, Ellen White's saying you can't be a Seventh-day Adventist and endorse slavery. And I think it's like Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that you put in the meal and it takes over the dough. And so the principles that would eventually end slavery, at least end the Christian church's endorsement of slavery, the principles were there. They just had to be like the leaven. They had to take over the dough. Okay, thank you. John. My comment was around God not explicitly saying something, right? And how we read that. I think it's more than that for me. The challenge for me is it's not that it wasn't specifically addressed as wrong. It's that in some cases there was direction to go and do it, right? That makes it a little bit more difficult because it's one thing to not address something. It's another thing to tell your chosen tribe to go somewhere, do that exact thing to other people. I think that makes it a little bit easier for people to then say, well, God encouraged this. He didn't just not speak against it. He didn't just not address it, but he actively told people to go do this thing. So the Bible must agree with it in some cases, right? I think it makes it a little bit easier for people to justify their decisions when it was a directive that was specifically given rather than something that was just not addressed. So I think there is that challenge. I don't necessarily think it's people who have myopic views or aren't thinking it through or anything like that. I think it's a genuine, in some cases, genuine following of what they think they're specifically told to do. That makes it a little bit more difficult to then read more about the principle because the principle is something you're reading into, right? It's something that you're gathering from an entire story rather than it's this specific principle that God is giving you. So I think for someone who's maybe maturity level or level of faith, there is a tendency to say, I'm going to go and follow what God explicitly says, and I'm not going to go read into a bunch of stuff in case I'm wrong. I think there's just a little bit more to it than just something as simple as not doing something based on principle or not knowing any better. Okay, thank you. Henry? I think that sometimes we forget that the narratives, the stories that we have in the Bible are not necessarily an instruction for all of us to apply. Those were written within the context of the current circumstances that those places and times at that moment. And the fact that they are reflected like normal, in quotation marks, circumstances should not be taken as an endorsement by God. It just happened to be describing what is happening at those times and not necessarily a description. I was having a conversation with a group of people last night and somebody was mentioning, well, God ask us to have courage and to do not be terrified, quoting Joshua 1.9 and say, well, as far as I remember, that was an encouragement for Joshua. It was not for all of us at all the times. There are times when it is okay to be terrified. So some of these things are not necessarily prescriptions. And obviously, Paul wasn't trying to solve, to fix the problems of the age, but to ask us to look higher up to the spiritual element and while he is describing what is happening at that time. If you look under number five, Henry Van Dyke says, 
When abolitionists, people who are against the slavery, tell me that slaveholding is sin, in the simplicity of my faith in the Holy Scriptures, I point him to this sacred record and tell him in all candor, as my text does, that his teaching blasphemes the name of God and his doctrine. So because you don't have the text that says slavery is sin, that means slavery is not a sin. Now, do you see what is the problem with this type of reasoning? It's the merging of the two horizons. So the horizon of St. Paul, of Apostle Paul, became my horizon. Or the way I understand Paul is what Paul meant. And of course, you can use the same because there is no text that shows that circumcision is temporary. There are only texts which say circumcision is eternal sign between God and his people. Circumcision should be enforced until the second coming. Yet the early Christian church, as soon as the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 comes to the conclusion, actually, no, though we don't have a direct text that says circumcision is only temporary, cultural, or local. That's how we discern the redemptive direction of how God is leading us. And so Peter and James will say that by accepting Gentiles, God has purified them, he cleansed them, and that shows us that they are accepted even without the circumcision. So we can see the direction in which the Bible is going. and so. This merging of the horizons is a problem that if I understand it in a certain way, that means this is what the inspired author meant. And no, they are two separate horizons and they need to be kept separate. Otherwise, you are already implying that your horizon is the same as the horizon of the inspired author. And remember, you are not inspired. Moses is, Paul is. Now, in order to understand that, you need to understand Moses. Old Testament in the context of times to which he speaks. And I have struggled with this for a number of years because you know that for over 20, 25 years, I spent my ministry teaching future pastors and seminarians. And the perennial struggle there is, I am here to preach the gospel. Don't bother me with Greek. Don't bother me with pastoral psychology. Don't bother me with ancient history. I am here to preach the gospel. And how do you break to them, guys, you have nothing to preach, nothing to say, unless you understand what the gospel is, what the Bible says. And if you don't, you are going to come up with some distorted version of the gospel or a distorted version of your understanding of the Bible that is not going to help people, but to do more harm than good. So I gave you, under number six, some text. So let's go to Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14. Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God hands them over to you, and you take them captive, suppose you see among the captives a beautiful woman whom you desire and want to marry, and so you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head, pare her nails, discard her captive's garb, and shall remain in your house for a full month, mourning for her father and mother. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you are not satisfied with her, you shall let her go free and not sell her for money. You must not treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. You see, 
When you read a text like that, whether you realize it or not, subconsciously, you read it in 21st century through the Geneva Convention or Hague Convention on War and Treatment of Prisoners of Wars. And you say, what kind of harsh, primitive way of dealing with human being is this? But you don't realize that what you need to do is to read it in the context of Asian Near East. Because this is the context in which this was given. And given the example of the current war, you realize that people don't even follow this one. And that in Asian Near East, the way how they treated women who were taken captives in the war was utterly horrendous. So the mutilation, cutting off their breasts, would be torturing them to death, multiple rapes, etc., And then suddenly you realize how ugly was that world and how the Bible is going to put it in a completely different light. So Israelite is not permitted to rape or mutilate the captive. They need to have a cooling off period. And then if they are not happy with her as a marriage partner, they cannot sell her as a slave just by the fact that they've taken her. She must be free. Let's go to... Exodus 21, 20 and 21. Exodus 21, 20 to 21. So when you look at it from the context of how war prisoners were treated in Asian Near East, you realize the redemptive direction of the Bible. When a slave owner strikes a male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies immediately, the owner shall be punished. But if the slave survives for a day or two, there is no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. Okay, so once again, probably you have never heard a sermon on this text, so you don't preach it from Christian pulpit. And when you hear it, you say, oh, what a brutal way of dealing with people. And it is a brutal way because the ancient world was brutal. But you need to realize once again that if the people killed their slaves, it was like when you break your cup, so you buy a new one. There is no consequence. And the text says, if you beat the slave and he dies, then that's punishable. You can't do that. So it puts it in the context of the Asian Near East and the beating. For example, in Hammurabi's code, you can give 100 beatings, depending on who offended, how higher is the person. The Bible is going to limit this. Let me give you one more example. Deuteronomy 23, 15 to 16 to see the redemptive nature of the Bible. Deuteronomy 23, 15, 16. Slaves who have escaped to you from their owners shall not be given back to them. They shall reside with you in your midst, in any place they choose, in any one of your towns, wherever they please, you shall not oppress them. Can you see that? Now, once again, in order to understand it and appreciate, you need to know that in Kamurapi's code, There is a death penalty for runaway slave. And there is a death penalty for anyone who helps a slave that has run away from the master. So when you discover that this person is a runaway slave, you cannot help them under the death penalty. You can return them back to the master for extra bounty, for extra money. And here God says, but you will be a different type of community. Most nations had these extradition treaties for return of slaves, but God says you will be a different type of community. With you, if the slaves get to your territory, they are going to be treated in a different way. They are going to be treated with respect. 
and they already have the freedom and you cannot enslave them again. Now, let me go to Jesus. The interesting thing is that Jesus is not going to condemn slavery and denounce it, but he's going to turn it around by using the language of following Jesus, knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, and obeying Jesus into a metaphor of slavery. So let's read Matthew 10, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have been called the master of the house, be as zelbel, how much more will they malign those of his household? So you can see that Jesus puts the different spin on the servant and master, the teacher and the master uh, dynamic. And he shows you need to get a different optic, different perspective. And let's go to Matthew 20, verse 26. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. So the Gentiles exercise power over those that they have dominion, but it's not so with you. In my community, you cannot use power to enslave another human being created in God's image. Instead, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. He uses slave language. We just translate servant because it sounds better to our ears, but the same word for slave is used there. In 23.11, he says, the greatest among you will be your servant. And let's read Mark 10.45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And you see how Jesus turns the language around. He even tells the parable of the prodigal son who comes back home, who was a servant, a slave in the foreign land, instead of becoming a slave in the house. That's what he says he wants to be. He is turned into a son with inheritance and blessing. And so Jesus shows that there is the redemptive movement within the community that he established. Now, once you understand that, you are ready to read Paul in Ephesians 6, and to understand how Paul is going to say, and you masters, if you look under end of number two, you kirioi, that's the plural from the master, the Lord, you masters, stop threatening them. Do not use threatening, do not use power, because you know that both of you have the same kirios in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. So you who see yourself as a kirioi, as masters, as lords, be mindful how you treat your slaves because you have a kirios over you. There is a lord over you and he's not going to show partiality. He's not going to excuse a behavior that is abusive, that if you exercise this towards others, then it's okay, but it cannot be exercised towards you. So you can clearly see that redemptive direction even to the extent that when we come, if you look under number 10, just as Paul could not envisage a world without slaves, as you and I cannot envisage a world without electricity, you fast forward to 19th century and Ellen White is going to say, slavery is a sin and it's a sin in the heaven of the darkest die. And to Andrew Alexander Ross, she said, your use of slavery and the sacred important truths for this time cannot harmonize. You must yield your views or the truth. You cannot be both slave owner and a Seventh-day Adventist member. Both cannot be cherished in the same heart, for they are at war with each other. Can you see the movement 
which says we are a movement that believes in the present truth and we are continuing the redemptive trajectory of the Bible. And something that Jesus does not call a sin, that Paul does not call a sin in the first century, a prophet can call a sin of the darkest die in 19th century and say, you need to understand what are the sacred truths for the times in which you live in order to be part of this redemptive movement that God is trying to accomplish with humanity. So can you see how you start with the context of Asia Near East, the first horizon, the context of the Bible, the second horizon, and then our own context is the third horizon. And you need to keep these three, the horizons, separate from each other. Otherwise, you are going to misapply or misunderstand and then misapply the Bible because you take as inspired something which is said in a completely different context and mindlessly or blindly or literally apply it in a completely different time, different place, and a different context. All right, so let's go to Anthony. I see these verses as speaking to what we and ourselves can control, which is ourselves. So the verses talk about if you're a master, you have to treat your slaves well. If you're a slave, you have to treat your master well. And this harmonizes with, if we go back in our nation's history and look at what some of the nation's forefathers battled with as they began to try and figure out how to get rid of slavery. As some people pointed out in the chat, they realized that if they just merely said, oh, okay, they're going to be all be free, and they had opened their doors and sent them all away, they would be dooming some of them to starvation and difficulties, even though they had been giving them the freedom. So I think in context of these verses, those men in that case actually worked really hard to create good situations for their slaves and push for a freedom which is parallel to exactly what's being taught here, is if you're in this situation, you are now converted in in what you're thinking, you need to start conducting yourself with the correct biblical principles of how a person is to conduct themselves that is taught in the Bible. And that takes into account your comments about remembering what the contexts are. We have the your current context, you have the context of the situation at that time the Bible is written, and you have the biblical context, which is trying to teach us Christ-like manners. Yes, and as Larry put in the chat, slavery is by very nature in direct opposition to liberty and salvation. And since salvation is about living without slavery of any kind, it therefore stands to reason that God would never have supported slavery. But you have the cultural realities, and they are not going to change overnight. Let's read Philemon. Now remember, Philemon is the slave owner who has a slave whose name is Onesimus, which is Mr. Useful because Onesimus in Greek means useful. Paul is in a prison, and he writes to Philemon about how to deal with this runaway slave. And let's read verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And verse 18. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, can you see what Paul does? The same Paul who writes in Ephesians what he did, he says, welcome Onesimus, welcome a slave, a runaway slave from you, as you would welcome me. What? Just Paul did made Onesimus a slave equal to an apostle. And then he says, and if there is any damage, then put it on my tab. I will pay for him. 
but I want you to treat him as you would treat me. Imagine Paul is capable of saying, treat this slave in front of the entire church the way you would have treated me when I come to visit your church. Remember Matthew 25, when those who are lost say, when did we see you? Because for you, we would do anything. We would carry your suitcase. We would treat you with nice dignity and looked up to you. And Jesus says, if you didn't treat like this, the little ones, the ones on the margin, there is a character problem here. You don't understand what being a follower of Christ, being a slave of Christ means. And then Paul signs off with verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Can you imagine? I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Now, if Paul was not totally against slavery, he could have said it right here. He could have said, look, Philemon, I know how the Roman world works. There are slaves everywhere. There were about 6 million slaves. 250,000 were sold every year in the market. And as John reminded, the children had to stay slaves with the master. So he could have said, I know how Roman world works. There are slaves everywhere, but we Christians are different. We think it's morally wrong. But he doesn't say that. He clearly says in verse 10 that he's against selling slaves. But he says, I'm sure you can treat him not only like me. You can do even more than I ask. You can find in your heart the love that God, Jesus, pumps into your heart, into your community. And within the culture, we can be a force to be reckoned with, a force that transforms that community into something new. All right, Sean. Nice, vigorous discussion here. That does relieve me a little bit, but this premise that we're referring to with respect to God creating small bits of movement within those who were willing to listen to him in his day at that time, I am trying to reconcile how the Apostle Paul, as you put it here, could not envisage a world without slavery, just as we can't without electricity. I'm trying to reconcile how this masterful apostle who could well envisage principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places that we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against all the issues here in this cosmic conflict. And a Paul who could envisage a world built on unity, a world built in love, a world occupied by people with changed carnal nature, how this same Paul could not envisage a world where there were free human relationships without slavery. I'm having a hard time to reconcile those things, Daniel. It seems less apparent to me that this masterful Paul could not envisage a world without slavery, but he could envisage all these other wonderful dynamics that would very critically change social behaviors. And so it also is a reflection on God. Every comment we make, every passage we read is a comment about God. And it does show itself today that this reluctance on the part of God to address such a critical issue reflects on a lot of people's unwillingness to put their confidence in God who wouldn't deal with such a thing through a guy like Paul who was dealing with very critical pagan issues, idolatry, practices that were heinous. And yet we're 
trying to understand how he couldn't envisage a world without slavery. Just like your grandma could not envisage a world with cell phones and space shuttles and flying to the moon or landing on the moon, yet Paul has enough to say, understanding in 1 Corinthians 7, 2021, if you can get freed, go for it. If you as a slave have an opportunity to be free, go for it. Use that opportunity. But he does not believe that being a revolutionary, that killing your master in the process or being the radical is the way to change the society. And that's where we struggle that God can go with small baby steps to achieve a significant change long term rather than go for the big revolution which demolishes and destroys in the process and devours its own children. Let's go to Rita. Perhaps Paul could envisage that, but he knew that his audience couldn't. They weren't ready for that yet. And that's exactly how God worked with the Israelites. We've talked about this many times before. It's about being the same, but different. I'm close enough to you that you'll listen to me. But what I've got to tell you is a bit different. And take that. Let's move along in little steps here. And we've come a lot of centuries. Yeah, two millennia since Paul lived. We should have moved along millennia's worth of steps. Yes, and thank you, Rita. That was amazing. And let's come back to see how the contemporary Christian and Adventist world is polarized just when we start discussing certain issues, which I'm not even going to mention here, but our application of this principle of keeping the three horizons separated. And the only reason why I pulled out those quotations from 19th century America is that we have just forgotten that discussion. And we are going through the same discussion in our times again and again. And still people say, I cannot imagine that faithfulness to God means anything else than just an assent to what God said in the way I understand it. So that my horizon becomes the horizon of what God intended. Henry? When we pay attention to the readings of Paul, he oftentimes called himself a slave of God, a slave of the gospel. But that doesn't mean he's endorsing slavery. He honestly is making the reference to what was normal in those circumstances. And on the other hand, understanding that that slavery to God means freedom under a completely different paradigm of what we perceive slavery of freedom today. For us, freedom here in America means to keep our guns, right? For God, freedom may mean we don't even need guns. So it is a completely cultural shock that we need to perceive and understand that the way that Paul is addressing this is not to create a solution for all the problems in humanity, because the only problem that needs to be solved is sin in order to finalize all of the rest. So this is the main focus. Again, focus on what needs to be done so everything else will be solved as a domino effect. All right, thank you. Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay, can you see the difference between what he said in the previous section? And remember, the chapters are not part of the original. So he spoke about the mutual submission of husband and wife. And then when he comes to the family relations, when it comes to children and slaves, the key word will not be submission, but will be obedience. So the change of terminology. Husbands were instructed to love their wives. The wives are instructed to submit to their husbands, but the children are told to obey. In the New Testament, the command to obey is only given to children and to slaves, never to women, to wives. Because obey does not belong to the dynamics of mutual subjection. 
you cannot be mutually obedient to each other. That's logical absurdity. Obedience is in the realm of authority, where mutual subjection is not. So it's interesting that Paul uses the language of authority for parental relationships and master-slave relationships, but he avoids it when he speaks about the marital relationships within the family. And then if you look at number eight, notice how this mutuality is reflected in the fact that both parents, that is husband and wife, share the responsibility of leading the home. Both of them play an important role. Otherwise, Paul would have written, children, obey your mother who obeys your father. Or he would have said, children, obey your parents as your mother obeys your father. Or could have simply said, children and mother obey the father. But Paul establishes no such hierarchy between husband and wife, and the children are accountable to both parents, which presupposes a harmonious relationship between parents. So there is a shared responsibility which is required of mutual subservience between husband and wife. If they are locked in a power struggle, they will not have credibility as leaders with their children any more than a mother who is demanding obedience from her children while she herself treated her husband in a different way. So the appropriate climate to raise children is one where husband and wife are submitted to one another in the spirit of what went before. And then he mentions the commandment and adds the parenthesis that this is the first commandment with a promise. Notice that while children are under instruction, bringing up, the dynamic is obedience. Once they grow up, the dynamic changes into honoring, not being obedient. And the interesting thing, and if you look at the verse 4, is that because children in that world were traditionally raised by mothers, remember when we studied Ezra, and the children did not know the language, the Hebrew language, whose fault it was that the children didn't know the language, so could not listen to the reading of the scripture, who do they need to send away? Not the fathers who did not teach them, but these foreign mothers, because it's their fault that the children do not know the language. So because raising children is the responsibility of mothers in this world, Paul is going to address, to correct that by addressing fathers to redress the imbalance. Because the father's relationship with children is not tempered by mutual submission, they can easily go overboard and become arbitrary. And in order to prevent that, Paul offers the father some negative advice and some positive advice. So they are to nurture the children in a responsible manner, worthy of the Lord. Remember, they are not your children, they belong to the Lord. And you belong to the Lord. So in that sense, there needs to be a different dynamic. Children still remain in a relationship of obedience to their parents. But when they become independent adults, then only the provision of the fifth commandment applies to them and they will honor. Now, when he says this to the fathers, it's not to exclude mothers from bringing up the children, whether it's discipline or instruction, the behavioral or the cognitive aspect, but rather to include fathers in the process. And that's why he says they are part of the process as well. They cannot abandon their role. Now, he uses the word in verse 4, do not provoke, par orgizo, you hear orge there, the anger. The parallel passage in Colossians 3.21 says, fathers, do not exasperate or embitter your children. The Greek there, eretizo, means to stir up. So, bring them up in such a way so that you do not intentionally or carelessly frustrate your children so that you bring unnecessary anger. 
because a child's emotional frustration with their parent is going to put a wall between them, cut off the communication, damage the respect, exasperating your child is going to make it difficult for the child to obey. So the responsibility is on you to make it possible for them to obey you. And so you can see this different dynamic. All right, let's go to Anthony. I like what you've highlighted. I think it's important that we understand Paul's focus. His focus is to reach slave owners as well as slaves. So I think words like you were just using, he would embitter owners if he had tried to cast off slavery and vice versa. But in his ministry, he wants to reach everybody. And I think we also see this in Jesus' ministry as well. He didn't come and tell the Jews to throw off the Romans. He actually wanted to appeal to both, although his ministry is mostly to the Jews. But in this case, Paul is trying to appeal to both to operate within well-defined roles. Yes, and that goes back to what Rita mentioned before, that you know from the stages of faith. You can help people only if you are one stage ahead of them. Then you inspire them, then you motivate them, you encourage gently them to follow and to go to the higher level. But if you are two or more stages ahead of them, you frustrate them to the extent that they are going to crucify you or stone you, you are not helping them. Bob Kern also put it in the chat. Paul was wise enough to push envelope as far as he could without shutting down the society or the communication. Rita? This concept of obedience to parents, to children, is it also to say that your parents have got something to teach you. So listen to them. Don't balk against them, as many children do, particularly when they get teenagers. And also in the fathers do not exasperate your children, as the new international version uh, puts it. Is that about saying fathers love your children and show your love to your children in the same way that their mothers do? Because a child who feels rejected by his father, whether or not he actually is in the father's mind, ends up a very damaged person. Yeah, thank you. So our lesson is showing supreme loyalty to Christ. And here's the question. How do we show supreme loyalty to Christ in the times and place where we live in today's society? How does our understanding of the redemptive trajectory, this storyline, this forward movement, what God is trying to accomplish with people, help us to avoid repeating shortcomings of the past and to make sure that the society can understand what we stand for and what is God trying to achieve through the new type of community that he established. Sean? Yes, this is a deep challenge. Your last question there in the last paragraph of section 11, how do we wisely listen for, quote, the careful, sacred, important truths for this time? Now, this is a challenge to me. Responding to the transitional norms of our culture seems a critical component. How do I best respond to the transitional norms that I identify with my friends and loved ones in this my day? And what will that look like? What kind of, I'm going to use a word that can be misunderstood, what kind of compromise do I need to make with respect to observing dysfunction in my culture? The dysfunction with respect to relating to human beings who are quite different than I am, who demonstrate themselves either culturally or socially in ways that seem to be offensive. 
how do I respond and best show myself to those people who want to take leadership positions that seem not to be qualified, whether in the church, out of the church, in my local governance? How do I best as a Christian respond to these transitional norms in my culture today? This is a deep challenge, and I'm not certain about how to do that all the time. I want best to love people and support them, and yet not endorse something that would be a continuation of a wrong or an ill or a human incapacity that would effectively reduce the community, the church community, or the civic community in negative terms. These are hard issues. So I need some help. (laughs) And you can see how simply quoting the Bible or enforcing a certain understanding can cause more harm and alienation than helping people. Let's go to Iris. I think Paul himself is fascinating in terms of his own growing. As he grew in understanding of who God is, I mean, the transformation that happened in his life from being a very critical, judgmental person to being someone who reflects the love of Christ, who has experienced the love of Christ and who reflects the love of Christ in his life. And then as he encounters a broken world, he gently models and invites these new believers to allow their relationships to be transformed and to be different to where the world is. That's what I'm taking away from our study here this morning. He challenged society without getting tripped into becoming a social rebel where everything is about fixing society. So he modeled how relationships can look differently in the family with subordinates, whether they are children or slaves. And I think when we reflect what we know to be true about God, then I think we invite our society also to move a step further. I think where it's getting relevant in this day and age is I think particularly when dialogue has come to a breakdown, when you have fronts of people who cannot talk to each other anymore. I think that's when we are invited to be challenged by the gospel. (laughs) And if we stop being challenged by it, if we just reiterate what has already been made clear, then we take away the power of the gospel to challenge our status quo. You know, and that's why it was so important for the Seventh-day Adventist Church in its beginnings to not get that wrong. Had Ellen White not had that clarity, she would have basically said to society, a society at that point who was challenging this whole evil system of slavery, she would have basically communicated, this is not a church that you should listen to. <laughs> because had she gotten that one wrong at that point, she would have basically shown that this movement is irrelevant. Yeah, well said, Aris. Thank you. Henry? One thing that is important to consider is that when we read Paul and the descriptions of slavery, what comes to mind is people in shackles being forced to work for others. But today, we've had different representations of slavery. When we keep oppressing people in different ways, 
restricting their freedom, their freedom to express themselves, their freedom to be who they are. That's a modern way to practice slavery that sometimes we get stuck by reading Ephesians on people in prison. But there are many modern ways that we as Christians have the opportunity to continue to represent God in the way that he is, in a loving father, that even though he has the authority and the power and the superiority, all that he grants us is freedom. And I think this is a very relevant topic for today. If we are willing to see it the way that really is today and not trying to think if Paul was against or endorsing slavery in the traditional way that we see it. Yes, depending on how you read the Bible, you can easily write off Old Testament or write off Paul. They don't understand the world and the complexity of the situation in which we are, and that's why it's completely irrelevant and not inspired. Or you can just use them and blindly quoting them and harm people in the process because you don't understand the different horizons that the Bible is dealing with. Let's go to Helen, then Bobby Joe, and then Karen to conclude. So one way to respond to the challenge is to give up using any kind of coercion, whether blatant or implied. And that I find an ongoing challenge <laughs> me. And I referred also to John 15, 15 in terms of Christ not even wanting us to be servants or slaves to him. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So for me, it's kind of this transition from coercion to total transparency, because a lot of that has to do with communication, communicating the revelation of God transparently. Yeah, thank you, Helen. And because if you use coercion, if you use power, you get compliance, but you don't get agreement. And because we are all created in God's image, God is interested in more than just compliance. But the temptation to use the power or abuse it and coerce people, it's always there. And sadly, even the church throughout the centuries used it because it was easier and more predictable outcome than relying on the Holy Spirit leading people as slowly as we tend to move along or move forward. All right, Karen, let's go to you. As we've been reading this, I was thinking that at the heart of this passage, there seems to be this basic concept of treating others with respect and loving kindness in all our interactions with them regardless of their age, like children or their social status and what they do. And when we listen to their stories and we find out about their lives and how they experience the world, then we can learn how to treat them with respect and love, what respect and love means to them where they are in their context. And in that way, then we can learn from them how to love them well, to respect them well, to treat them well, so they can experience healthy relationships with us because those healthy relationships with us and other human beings are what helps them to shape a picture of how God loves them. And that's why I think this is just so very important, like fathers and children, um, because through fathers, we have a picture of who God is like. And so that relationship is so important to be loving and kind. And so I think it's this basic concept of respect and kindness for one another that is at the heart. Yes, thank you. Because God is in the process long term. He cannot use force to achieve what he wants. And that's why he needs to give liberty, freedom to his children so that his character could be manifested. And all of us learn the best when we are 
in the community of unconditional acceptance. That's where we feel accepted in spite of our failures. We are willing to move forward and hopefully healed enough to be willing to step out in faith and give the same love and acceptance to others as we have received from God. You and I face challenges in today's world and culture, which some are similar, some are different, and there will be more challenges as time goes on. Yet, if we are open to the discernment, if we understand how God has dealt with us as a community of believers in the past, starting with the released slaves of Israel, how he brings them forward, how Jesus tries to reverse the language and culture and put it upside down and show the values and the ideals of a new type of society, then hopefully in our times we can do the same thing with those sacred important truths that we have many things to learn and many, many to unlearn so that we can be the type of community God wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we are certainly thankful for how you have led us corporatively as a Christian church for the last 2,000 years, and also specifically in our movement with emphasis on the present truth and being a movement that is not bound by fossilized credo that does not allow anything new that your Holy Spirit wants us to discern. And we thank you for each one of us individually, how you have been with us on our journey of faith, and that all of us can testify that today we are in a different place than 5, 10, 15, 20, or more years ago. And for that, we are eternally thankful to your transforming grace, to your Holy Spirit, and also to the community that is gently nudging us to move forward and be discerning in what is your will for us today. And so we pray that our hearts are open, our minds are sensitive, and that your Holy Spirit can do this work with each one of us individually and with all of us as a body of believers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.